Our passage this week comes from the book of Job, chapter 36, verses 1 through 21. Uh, we are only looking at this, uh, the first three quarters, or three quarters of the chapter. Uh, the, the last goes best with the, the first part of chapter uh, 37, and that's how we will take it. Uh, but as, as we approach, remember that this is the speech of Elihu, Elihu, to, uh, to Job. Uh, these are his corrections and admonitions to him. As I've mentioned before, I think that he is rather to be interpreted as an extension of the arguments of Job's friends rather than uh, a, a voice that comes directly from the Lord. But uh, much of his counsel, like the three friends, was good counsel in its proper application. And so we will look at it in that light Before I read the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask again that you give us your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit inspired these words for our infallible instruction. That we might know you. That we might know your ways. That our sin might be revealed that it might be corrected and reproved, and that we might be trained and instructed in all godliness and holiness and righteousness, that we might know uh, your mercy. And we ask, dear Lord, uh, that your spirit would dwell within each heart here this morning, that he would ensure that your words are received in the manner that you intend them, that your word would not return unto you void, but that it would bear the fruit, fruit of repentance of sin, faith and trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, and obedience and love to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, verses 1 through 21. Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Behold, God is mighty, and despiseth not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. Yea, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. And if they be bound in feathers, fetters, and be held in cords of affliction, then he showeth them their work, that their transgressions that they have exceeded. And he openeth also their ear to discipline, and commandeth that they return from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword, and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart heart heap up wrath. They cry not when he bindeth them. They die in youth, and their life is among the unclean. He delivereth the poor in his affliction, and openeth their ears in oppression. 
Even so, he would, would he have removed thee out of the strait into a broad place where there is no straightness? And that which should be set on thy table should be full of fatness. But thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold on thee. Because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away with his stroke. Then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Will he esteem thy riches? No, not gold, nor all the forces of strength. Desire not the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, regard not iniquity, for this hast thou chosen rather than affliction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Elihu, in this passage, is attempting, in this passage and the passage that follows, is attempting to uh, instruct Job on how to take his afflictions. Uh, Attempting to correct Job's manner under affliction. Now, uh, for our sake, we're we're a bit long in tooth in the book of Job, and sometimes uh, the original question is, is not right before us, and we tend to get distracted about who's right in the arguments between Job and his friends and forget that that is not the canonical purpose of the book of Job. That's not how the apostles received it and told us to receive it. It's not how uh, Job was made use of. And the larger argument of the book of Job and what we are to, to approach Job with is an understanding of how much we are to endure. What, what is required of us to be patient under the Lord's stroke and affliction. Remember uh, the great contest between Satan and the Lord. Uh, The Lord has pointed out Job's holiness and righteousness and devotion to the Lord. And the devil has said, yes, but if you afflict him, he will turn away. He is a good time Charlie sort of a believer and he will curse you. And of course, the book of Job shows that Job did not do that. It's not that Job was ever sinless. Not that he was sinless beforehand. He was a man that sacrificed unto God because of his sin, because of his repentant heart. He had integrity of faith before the Lord, like David. When David has his sins exposed to him, he repents and turns unto the Lord. And therefore, though he was an adulterer and a murderer and a troubler of Israel, he was also a man after God's own heart. And so with Job, that he has humbled himself before the Lord and has taken his afflictions to the Lord and has been bold with the Lord uh, because of, uh, of his afflictions and of his faith. Elihu, though, uh, is, is a bit put off uh, by the implications of Job's words as he's heard them. And we've seen in the previous chapters that he often puts meaning upon Job's words that the context will not bear. And therefore, he, like the friends, has mistook Job. Uh, He is better than the friends because he does not accuse Job of hypocrisy that he cannot prove. uh, But he takes him to task for the way he is behaved under affliction. And he continues to do so. Now, he is willing uh, to admit that afflictions do happen even to the godly. Which is something that his friends, for the sake of argument were quite loath to do. Uh, but, but he brings up to Job what we are to make of affliction. 
And it will behoove us to hear these words, uh, not least of which because they are good. Uh, They may not be the whole truth, but they are truth. And they are confirmed in many other places of Scripture as well. And they are filled with humble wisdom. And he starts off in verses 5 through 7, magnifying the Lord's glory. Uh, And that the Lord's glory is that he upholds justice. That he is all-powerful. And being all-powerful, he's not like a human being with some power over his brethren who turns to tyranny and bullying, uh, bullying, bulliness, but rather is one who, because he is all-powerful, therefore has no fear or temptation to that which would lead him to injustice. And so his power is used compassionately. And that since we are his creation, these are not part of Elihu's words, but we're going to fetch a little bit to show uh, some of the rationale behind those words. Because he has created us, it makes sense that he is concerned with his creation. And it is the way we experience the Lord, that he is compassionate and good to his creation. Verse 5, Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. Yea, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. Now, he clearly states that part of the glory of the Lord is to take the afflicted, the poor, those that are righteous, but under the afflictions of the wicked that he will not sustain, And he will lift them up and will lift them up in such a way that they will be like kings on thrones with their dynasties established forever. And clearly he's speaking spiritually here because uh, it is not the case that even in Elihu's day that kings were established on their thrones and uh, dynasties forever. And it is also true that if he can speak of the poor and the righteous as afflicted, then certainly he's not saying that the establishment and the deliverance of the Lord are completely without some affliction as well. But he does say that it is the Lord's work and the glory of the Lord's work to take those which are despised in the world and despised by the powerful of mankind and deliver them and break the hands of the oppressors and to lift up those that are poor to be well provided for And that for eternity. It is one of the reasons why uh, David uh, magnifies the Lord in our call to worship in Psalm 34, verses 15 and following. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. Note, they are righteous, but they do have occasion to cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as are of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. This is the way of the Lord. He is known to be the God of the fatherless and the God of the widow. He is the God that concerns himself with those that mankind don't concern themselves with. He is, when he came in the flesh, told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those uh, that are peacemakers and blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake. The Lord remembers them. The Lord remembers them particularly because they are not remembered by the world. And he reinforces this, as I mentioned before, by notions of his might and powerfulness. That he is mighty in strength and wisdom, or he is mighty in strong wisdom, or probably the Hebrew connotation here is he is mighty in his magnanimity, which is a word I can't say and didn't plan on saying. Magnanimous is the Lord, and he is mighty in his magnanimousness. The Lord has a great strong heart to his people. And his people, when they turn to him, find him compassionate and kind and willing to help. And if they open their ears to him and their eyes to his works and their heart to him, they will find that those things that grieve them, grieve them no more. That those things that trouble them, trouble them no more. For those things that cause them to fear when they turn their fear unto the Lord no longer are an issue. And very often, because the Lord himself works his mercy in their lives in ways quite unexpected, but nevertheless, to deliver them and to provide for them, so that even uh, the slave can have those moments when, as Elihu notes in the previous chapter, that he has songs in the night, and has occasion, whether he takes it or not, to praise his Lord's mercy and to praise his Lord's goodness. But he understands that there will be those that would object, well, what about the afflicted? What about these people that the Lord is good to? How do they enter into uh, affliction in the first place? And it can always be of oppressors that those that the Lord loves are afflicted. What happens when they're bound in fetters and they're held in cords of affliction, verse 8? Well, indeed they are. But these afflictions are part of the Lord's love. They're like the chastisements of a father to his son. The words are in 8 through 12. And if they be bound in feathers and held in the cords of affliction, and he's talking about the righteous poor here, then he shows them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. That their prosperity has made them careless and the Lord is bringing upon them their discipline. He opens also their ears to discipline and commands that they return from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they return in repentance and obedience. They shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. He will not let them enter into condemnation of wickedness. He will not let them enjoy their sin as part of his mercy. And so he can say in the the concluding of this uh, uh, passage when he's fetching his doctrine from afar, his abstract principles before he applies them to Job in verse 16, he delivers the poor in his affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Uh, the hypocrites he had mentioned in verse 13 and 14, uh, they are afflicted in a very different way. The same thing may happen to them, but, uh, but what's going on internally and in telos and the purpose of it is very different. But the afflictions are the Lord's chastisements 
in love. And one of the reasons is, is that ease and comfort makes us fat in the wrong things. Now, it's true that in Scripture, being fat is a sign of, of blessing and, and good things, but we could be fat on the wrong things. In Jeremiah 22, verse 21, uh, Jeremiah takes to task Israel, well, the Lord takes to task Israel. I spoke unto them in prosperity, but thou sayest, I will not hear. This has been thy manner from thy youth, that thou obeyest not my voice, particularly in prosperity. Moses had said in his second law, the, the summary of the law in Deuteronomy, that when you enter into the land and you have grown fat on uh, the, the milk and the honey that I will give you, and your heart forgets me in your comfort and in your pleasures, and it will go after other gods, and I will bring upon you affliction. It's one of the reasons why Moab was always under God's judgment in Jeremiah 48, verse 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone in captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. He's like a spoiled child, one neglected of discipline. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander, and shall empty his vessel and break their bottles, and Moab shall be ashamed of Hamash, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. They will be made desolate and go into captivity, even as the northern kingdom did in her idolatry. But without the promises of the Lord, because Moab, unlike Israel, had not the chastisements of the Lord, but rather the punishments. Ease, what it does, it narrows our world. Sometimes when we are comfortable in this world, we, we tend to forget that there are other things that we do not see. Uh, that we forget the vanity of those things that we enjoy. We forget that they are given as gifts to be enjoyed, but passingly. That we might seek our ultimate good in the one who gives such gifts. We forget heaven and our eyes fit, simply rest upon the gifts of heaven. And that's our undoing. And to leave you in deadly comfort is not love. And that's why in verse 12 he will say that if they obey not, then even though they be righteous and my children, they shall die. This is... This is uh, one of those promises. It's better to suffer even death than to be condemned. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper next week. One of the things that Paul writes to them about the Lord's Supper is that they were using it as an occasion for division and sin. And they were not discerning the Lord's body in it. And therefore, they were suffering and they were dying. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, that is, the sleep of death. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we would examine ourselves and condemn ourselves and humble ourselves, then God wouldn't have to humble us. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. That these awful things that were happening were happening so that they would not, they might be cut off in their prime, but they would not be condemned. The same thing happens to Asa. 
uh, one of the first righteous kings after the division of the northern kingdom from Judah. And, and he serves the Lord and serves the Lord well. Uh, but and he is a man that is described as being after his own heart and perfect and doing good and taking uh, down the idolatry that abounded there. And yet in his long reign coming to the end, he would rather make policy. Instead, when the northern kingdom evaded his territory, he sought out the alliance of Syria instead of turning to the Lord. And when the disease came into his legs, he sought out positions instead of bothering the Lord. And the Lord condemned him. Josiah, the last good king of Israel, a good king that overturned even the high places of of Judah, nevertheless took it upon himself to intercede in political matters that God himself told him not to meddle with. And because he would not hear the voice of the Lord... God struck him down, and he died. Not because he was damned before the Lord, but because God would not let him continue in that which would bring his damnation. And so the Corinthians often fell under a grievous affliction so that they would not be damned by their uh, violating and treating lightly the ordinances and the sacrament of God. And so he does. It it is actually, as I mentioned, uh, not love at all to leave you in comfort. We read together Hebrews chapter 12 to verse 6. If you go back to it, you will see that he, uh, in those last two verses that we read, 5 and 6, he quotes uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And, and he says that you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. We go, Father, if ye endure the chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father does not chasten? But if we will be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are like bastard children and not sons. Father, we had had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For verily, for a few days he chasteneth us after our own, they chastened us after their own pleasure, but he does it for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of, the right, of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So it opens us unto repentance. It gives us the opportunity to see the error of our ways and turn to Him. And if we obey, verse 11, then it is a, a obedience of blessing. But if we obey not, uh, we perish. Uh, we have that opportunity given that we are not to neglect and, and let us not take, take that great privilege for granted. If you look at what we just read in Hebrews 12, then verse 12 following, wherefore, I mean, Paul is to, or Luke or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is saying, you know, no chastening is pleasant, but it is of the Lord's 
love. And here's the, the response that we should have. Lift up your hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, which is why he does what he does. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any foot root or, uh, that is of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, because his eyes were not on heavenly things, but on earthly things. For the immediacy. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The meaning there is cryptic, but clearly Esau had not changed the underlying motivations. He just regretted losing uh, the gift. And there was no such repentance for him. So when you have repentance before you, you take it. When you are troubled, one of the first things we should do, one of the things that we have seen Job do, by the way, was examine himself and ask, if, if we can't find it, if I have transgressed your ways, Lord, reveal them unto me. With a readiness to turn. That affliction, affliction no matter where it comes from, we, the Lord afflicts His people in different ways. He afflicts us individually for our individual faults. He afflicts us corporately as a people, as a church, when we go astray. But He will also afflict the nations and our nation when we go astray. That we might take, that we might pause and examine ourselves. The hypocrite doesn't do such a thing. The hypocrite hardens his heart. The hypocrite heaps up wrath, verse 13. And they do not cry unto the Lord. They'll seek anything and everywhere, but not the Lord. Or if they do, it is like in the previous chapter 35, where they cry out only for the affliction, but they have no intent to be conformed to the image of God. And Elihu says truthfully, they die in youth, they die out of their due time. Their life is, li- is life of the unclean, that is, uh, with the Sodomites and uh, their destruction or whether it is of, of a short space. But it is not that great hope to being in the Lord's house forever that Job has expressed. Let us not take granted the calls to repentance. Now, it should be noted, Elihu's doctrine is that afflictions are chastisements in love and seems to be only that they are chastisements. But we have seen in the book of Job that afflictions do other good too. It has done good in Job. He cried out first and with great forlornness for death. But he has gotten a hope that is beyond uh, what, as far as we can tell, was revealed at that time. Uh, Chapter 19, 25 through 27. He knows that if he dies unvindicated, that that must mean that he will uh, be back in the flesh to see the Redeemer that the Lord has provided. I know that when these eyes have deteriorated and are in ashes, that my Redeemer liveth and He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And I will, with my eyes, after those worms have consumed my body, will behold Him. 
And he has other things too. He recognizes that judgment is not just judgment upon the earth. That it has an eternal and awful ramifications. He also understands that, that he is to be, in chapter 17, an exemplar. A model of patience. So afflictions do other goods. Uh, but, but one of those goods... And oftentimes, because we live in a sin-sick world and you and I have sinful hearts, one of the chief goods that affliction does is refinement, chastisement, bringing us to repentance. And when we are chafing under an affliction, we're struggling to make ends meet, when we need to learn to be grateful for what we have, and to be better stewards of what we've gotten. When we are chafing under the uh, conflict with a friend or family member, then we might redouble our efforts to be peacemakers, to watch our tongue, uh, to seek to encourage. When we are chafing under the demands of chastity, we have to remember to love the wife of our youth or the husband of our youth. And to remember uh, to give ourselves for our spouse, even as the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us. These are things that the Lord does, uh, that we might grow in grace, that our gold might be refined and the dross purged away, because without holiness, we will not see the Lord. If he leaves you simply in the sin in which he finds you, then the grace of Jesus Christ does no good. Because it's not enough that we be forgiven of our sin. If we have not been made holy, heaven will be hell to us. Because heaven is living for eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of God Almighty, in the presence of Jesus Christ, who opens the heart and all the secrets are exposed. And if you are not been refined, if we haven't been made like him, even as he is, then that will be a hellish nightmare of shame for all eternity. And it will be no functionally different than if we were in hell where the fire of shame and degradation is never quenched and the worm is not stilled. So it's the Lord's good. That he does it now. And we ought to, then, directions, look to the Lord's goodness and blessing even when we can't see it. That's why Paul told us in Romans 8, 28, one of those uh, verses that we always bring up. God works all things for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Paul does not say that in the context of some uh, Texas evangelist preaching on the TV that if you only believe, if you only believe in yourself, if you only seek to deny any sort of sadness or, or hardship, if you look to the sunny side of life, then everything will be sunny. Paul tells us that God works all things for good because all things appear to be very terrible. That we are being afflicted and given over to blood. Thankfully, we are not as yet. But they were then. And that's what Paul is talking about. But he also recognizes even the affliction that we have within ourselves. 
that struggle that we have within our soul is not easy and not good. It is real affliction. And those things, too, are worked for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what Job did, though not always perfectly. Job 13, 15. Though the Lord slay me, yet will I turn to him. The Lord gives us crosses so that we might enjoy the victory of Christ's cross. That we might enjoy the resurrection and new life of our Savior. It is a training ground. And it is a mercy to us. And we ought to receive afflictions that way. And so let's let affliction have her perfect work in humility and repentance, faith. Don't add, I mean, taking from Elihu's instructions here, don't add sin to sin and provokes God's wrath. Uh, Elihu thought that Job was provoking God's wrath when he complained of the Lord's ways with him. Uh, the Lord, Job was wrestling with the Lord there. He was constantly saying that, that, that he was telling his friends that the way the Lord is treating me appears one way, but I know he has other intentions. I don't know what they are. But we have to be careful with our words there, and we even see Job himself correct his words. And so there was, and the Lord himself will rebuke Job. Job didn't persevere in faith perfectly. He persevered in faith. We have to also beware the lure of the easy exit. Elihu, remembering Job's words that he longed for death so, so earnestly, is scared for his brother, I think, a bit, about suicide or whatnot. 18, because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away in his stroke, when a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Will he esteem thy riches? No, not thy gold, nor all the forces of strength. All those have been robbed of Job anyway. Desire not the night when people are cut off in their place. The idea is that the room of repentance does not extend past death. We could take this also spiritually. The room of repentance doesn't even always extend to death. Judas, after he betrayed Christ and in his despair could not find it within himself to humble himself in repentance and, and killed himself. It's not to say that every suicide is such a thing. But we have to be wary of the lure of an easy exit, whether that's the extreme form of suicide or whatever it might be, that the devil wants to cut off us from repentance. And he will offer, when we are struggling under affliction, he will offer easy outs. One of the easy outs he offered Job was just admit that you are a hypocrite, when you weren't, and repent. Deny the grace of God that is in you, and then you'll have the real grace of God. That was, that was the pressure that Job's three friends, and even to a certain extent Elihu, was putting upon Job that he had to persevere with. And then we need to finally take hardship as what it is. It's a call to follow Christ Jesus in patience. Jesus himself has told us that if you would follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and do so. Denying yourself and taking up a cross is no easy thing. When Jesus said the words, he had no notion that taking up a cross would simply be uh, putting some trinket around your neck with the shape of a cross. Taking up your torture, which is what the cross was, taking up your affliction, taking up your suffering, and whatever it may be, 
and glorify Christ in it, knowing that on your behalf he came and bore affliction. As righteous by faith and grace as Job might be, he wasn't perfectly righteous in all things. We had one to stand in our place that was. God himself took upon him, uh, himself our nature and died in our place and was raised again. And out of gratitude and out of trust that he means well by us, that he despises not any, verse 5, then we ought to take afflictions as graces, looking to see what he may be working in our life, to correct ignorance that may be there, as it did with Job, or to correct sin. And that we ought to turn and serve the Lord and know his pleasure and know his prosperity. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would magnify yourself to us, particularly when it is hard to see you in the world, particularly when we suffer, particularly when we are cast down. We ask that you would show us your good, that we might with Job persevere, that we might with Job, though you appear to slay us, look to you nevertheless, knowing that it is in you alone that the pearl of great price resides it is in you alone that has that everlasting life which thief nor rust can destroy or steal. We ask, Father, that you would confirm us in your love and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.